it is a problem for the individual cow, and especially if he ha if she has uh, clinical symptoms. Uh, and that's devastating for the small herd, you know, your best cow uh, or high pedigree herds, your best cow having clinical ketosis. Uh, usually comes along with other diseases. Those cows usually have metritis or they might develop DA during the clinical ketosis case or a little bit afterwards. So it is a problem. A whole new era of communication in the dairy industry is coming soon. Now you have the brightest minds in the global dairy industry right in your pocket. And what's best? You can listen to all of them while driving to a farm, traveling, or running errands. It's never been this good, and it's never been this simple. The Dairy Podcast Show is only possible with the support and trust of innovative companies like Diamond V, because animal health deserves a healthier approach. Excellent by Protecta, a novel product for the management of hypocalcemia. It's uncomplicated excellence. DSM and AB Vista. Welcome to the Dairy Podcast Show. My name is Barry Bradford from Michigan State University. And today I'm excited to interview actually one of my colleagues at uh, Michigan State and a good friend, Dr. Andres Contreras. How's everything going today? Hello, Barry. Very good. Thank you. How are you today? Excellent. Thanks. Thank you for the invitation to participate in the podcast. Andres, you're, I like to tease you because you're a doctor doctor. Um, I'll probably <laughs> call you that the whole podcast. But could you start off by talking a little bit about your background? You know, where'd you come from? How did you end up here doing what you're doing today? Yeah, sure. I'm originally from Colombia. I received my DBM down there at the Universidad Nacional de Colombia. I did practice in Colombia for about four years. Uh, my clients were mainly uh, grazing dairy herds and some uh, cow-calf operation. I was in the tropics, so I had the experience with both type of herds. Uh, then I came for a year uh, here to Michigan State, actually, uh, to a program uh, for veterinarians that was uh, called the Large Dairy Internship. So I practiced for a year uh, at a large dairy in West Michigan, uh, supervised by uh, maybe some of you might know, Dr. Walter Garbach. Uh, I did learn a lot with him. Uh, then I went uh, to went back to school here at Michigan State to do my master's. I did it on uh, mastitis. Uh, my project was on preventing uh, heifer mastitis. And I did my PhD here at Michigan State too with Dr. Lorraine Sordillo. Uh, my focus was on uh, fat mobilization and how it affects uh, immune function in very paternal cows. Actually, I went to uh, for a postdoc uh, to Detroit, to the Center for uh, Integrative uh, Metabolic and Endocrine Research. And there I work in an IPOS tissue biology lab. Uh, my PI was Dr. Jane Garneman. And uh, there I learned a lot about IPOS tissue biology and how the fat remodels itself when there's a lot of lipolysis fat breakdown. Then I came back here to MSU. Uh, and I started my current position in 2013, and now I'm associate professor. Well, it, it's amazing the uh, the kind of people that you were mentored by, and you know what's great about that is you had mentors that working in basic biology, 
to veterinary practice. Dr. Gudebach is, of course, famous. And then uh, sort of in between there, Dr. Sordillo, um, who, of course, we just lost last year. Uh, it was a big hit to our program here. But, Andres, fill me in a little bit on your research program, if you would. What, what are the major thrusts of your research today? And um, then we can get into a little bit of tying that into how that impacts the industry. Sure. Uh, well, my program focuses on the biology of the fat, the ipos tissue in dairy cows, especially preterm dairy cows. So I'll, uh, we seek to understand how is that the fat tissue adapts to periods of negative energy balance and how that might impact how the cow functions, not only production-wise, but also uh, how she might become more or less susceptible to different diseases depending on the intensity of uh, the fat mobilization in the ipos tissue and looking for uh, tools that we could use uh, either drugs or nutritional interventions such as fatty acid supplementation that we could actually modulate the intensity of that uh, fat mobilization and make the cow more productive and less prone to having diseases in the preterm period. So help me think through something, first of all. So certainly one thing that's been communicated pretty effectively, I think, to the dairy community is that the last thing we want in a cow that's about to give birth is for her to be too fat, right? So if we want to keep cows from getting over-conditioned, why is it then that you're also saying that mobilizing or, or releasing too much fat is a problem, right? It seems like you want it both ways. She can't be too fat, but then if she loses fat, that's a problem too. Help me understand that. Yeah, two things. You don't want a cow that's too fat, uh, and you don't want a cow that's too thin. Uh, I'm pretty sure all the producers know that if you have a cow that's going to cap and it's too thin, she's, gonna make, she's not going to make any milk. Well, the same thing happens with the, the cow that's too fat. The problem with the cows is that they are very sensitive, especially around calving, uh, to negative energy balance, and they react, they mobilize a lot of fat in a very short period of time. So when you have a cow that's too fat, she's going to mobilize a lot of fat in a very short period of time. And because she has so much store, the, the source is going to be uh, excessive, and then that's going to overload all the system, in this case would be the liver, uh, and perhaps other organs, and then we're going to start having issues. So that's the reason why the cow is very sensitive to negative energy balance uh, within the first two weeks after calving. She's going to respond, uh, mobilizing a high amount of energy from the fat, and she might not be able to handle all that energy. That makes sense. So help me think through the the excessive fat and the what do you mean that she's maybe not able to handle it? What are the implications of that for her health? Yeah, so there are several uh, layers of, of this story. The first one is that the liver of the cow is not built, if you will, to handle the amount of fat that can be mobilized within one or two weeks after calving. The liver would become... a overstock with fat and it will try to store it as a lipid uh, and that's that's when you start to see a, a fatty liver or it might try to actually provide additional energy to a cow 
and it will start to produce uh, ketone bodies. However, she is not very uh, effective. The liver of the cow is not very uh, efficient in exporting the right amount of uh, ketone bodies in order not to become overfilled with lipid. And then you'll have two problems. One, a fatty liver. And the second one, you're going to have a, a high content of circulating BHB or ketone bodies. And that would actually start to uh, have issues neurologically because when you have high ketone bodies that might actually impair the neurologic function of the cow. And that's when you start to see cows that are lethargic, they're not moving well, they're too slow, they don't want to eat. And obviously you start to see a low production and the cows don't want to move. So that's basically the story there. No, that's good. Um, I, that helps a lot, I think. So you, you brought up a term that gets um, debated, discussed a lot still today, although it's been discussed for probably at least 80 years, and, and that's ketosis, right? So we still have ongoing debates about how important this is, how much effort a dairy farm should put into tracking ketosis, uh, whether it should be treated or not. Walk me through this from the from the beginning. How do we even find a cow with ketosis, and what's what's ketosis versus subclinical ketosis? That's an excellent question, Barry. So first, uh, we have to define ketosis uh, in two groups, right? One is the clinical ketosis, where you see symptoms, lethargy, uh, a drop in appetite, a drop in milk production. The cow might be uh, showing. Neurological symptoms, walking funny, uh, you know, smelling a lot like ketone bodies. That's the individual cow. That's when you have a problem, you have to treat the cow. Uh, the standard treatment for clinical ketosis uh, in many herds now is propylene glycol. And then we have the other type of ketosis that is, it's difficult to define because it might actually vary depending on herd. Uh, there is uh, mm, a definition out in the literature that says that it's a, a, any any cow that has above 1.2 uh, millimolars per liter of uh, beta-hydroxybutyrate, she's considered a cow with subclinical ketosis. And then above three is a cow with clinical ketosis. But if you go out to herds, You'll hear veterinarians, you'll hear dairy producers that saying that that are saying, okay, but I have cows that have 1.8 or 2.5 of BHB, and they're fine. They're the cows that make more milk in my herd, and I I, I don't want even to touch them because if I touch them, I'm pretty sure she's gonna drop the milk the next day. So the definition is uh, needs to take into account. Uh, first of all, I think the breed. Uh, the Holstein breed has been, you know, constantly uh, bred for higher milk production. And if you breed cows to make more milk, their organs are going to uh, be built to withstand higher levels of NIFAS and higher levels of BHP. So the definition for subclinical ketosis for a cow in 2022 may be different for, uh, if we compare it to a cow in the year 2000. So maybe a definition of 1.2 was valid for cows that 
were bred in the 2000s, for example. But if you think about it, we have like seven or eight generations now where we have improved not only the milk production, but also how efficient they are in utilizing the, well, the feed that we provide. So maybe they're able to handle 1.2, 1.5, even two, and make a lot of milk and be productive and have a, a, a good reproduction. So that's, that's where the finance of clinical ketosis is more an issue that might depend on the herd, on the individual cow, or even with the age of the cow, maybe other cows might or not uh, handle better high concentrations of BHB in plasma than younger cows. But that's what we need to monitor, right, in, in your herd. So if you're having issues with cows not picking, and if you are measuring uh, BHB and NIFAS maybe weekly or bi-weekly, depending on how big is your herd, then you might start, you know, uh, joining the dots, so, so connecting the dots. So maybe I'm having uh, high BHPs, my cows in the close-up, maybe perhaps I had a week when they were overcrowded. Well, then we're, you're going to start to see some issues with your cows. Maybe that's, then maybe you have a problem with subclinical ketosis. But if your cow, cows are fine and they're producing a lot of milk, then maybe, you know, the intervention might, might not be necessary. Okay, so I think that kind of gets at one question I was going to ask you is, and this this is where there's some disagreement, I think, among experts. Do you consider high ketone concentrations a problem in and of themselves? Or do you think of it more of a symptom of a, an upstream problem? Do you know what I mean? Yes, I understand your question. So I would go back to my initial definition. It is a problem for the individual cow, and especially if he ha if she has uh, clinical symptoms. Uh, and that's devastating for the small herd, you know, your best cow uh, or high pedigree herds, your best cow having clinical ketosis uh, usually comes along with other diseases. Those cows usually have metritis or they might develop DA during the clinical ketosis case or a little bit afterwards. So it is a problem. It is a symptom in larger herds and in smaller herds too, when you are having issues with production, with delayed reproduction, when you have high levels of ketone bodies, but you don't have clinical symptoms. And that's probably a reflection of issues that might be temporary or constant in your close-up pens. So if you had, for example, a overcrowding in certain times of the year, uh, if you have uh, maybe changes in, in your silage, the crop from the previous year coming to an end, and then you're starting the new silage of the current year, that's usually when you start to see changes uh, in how cows handle feed, and then you see the impact in fresh cows. All those kind of problems, maybe perhaps you have a, a new feeder helping you at the farm and that person perhaps made some you know rookie mistakes when mixing the TMR that's where you start to see this kind of problem so it's a symptom usually if you have a population issue and it's a problem if you have individual cows that are usually uh, very good cows that get these kind of uh, problems okay that helps thank you so you mentioned some things that uh you know, workers or employees on a farm can, can make mistakes and there, there may be ripple effects uh, on the cows then. 
but that also brings up, you know, one of the major challenges in the industry today is, is finding enough people, you know, just like almost any sector uh, in our economy today. And certainly, uh, I know lots of producers today that are reviewing everything they do on their farm. What, what can we cut back that'll save us some labor because we got to cover, you know, the basics. So that really, I think, brings to the forefront the, the true cost of doing very labor-intensive routine monitoring of fresh cows, right? And that's not to say it's not worth it, but what would you say to a producer that says, okay, do I really need to be checking urine or, or blood ketones on every fresh cow every day? If so, for how long? What are your recommendations for that? Well, uh, that's, a, that's a, a tricky question. First of all, it depends on your labor availability. If you have a person that's willing to do uh, to check cows every week, all the cows that uh, that you have calving within a week, within a day, even when you have larger herds that calf 24 hours a day, uh, you could do it. I think it would be very labor intense. Uh, I would probably monitor uh, cohorts of cows, depending on the size of, of your herd, uh, if you think that those cows come within weekly basis or within daily basis or by pen, I would probably monitor those cows, especially if week before and maybe up to two, three weeks after calving before you move them to a high producing pen when you leave the when the cow leaves the fresh cow pen. Uh, and maybe a, a representative number of those cows, uh, you know, usually. You know, what your veterinarian recommends, 10, 20 cows, depending on the size of your herd. Uh, but uh, I would actually discourage uh, to do individual monitoring because BHB and especially NIFAS are very variable. And you really need to look at those uh, results more like on a herd perspective than on an individual cow perspective. Obviously, if you have a cow that's clinically ketotic and is sick, well, you don't even need to measure ketone bodies if she smells like ketones and you obviously see that she has ketosis. But if a cow, for example, has high levels of uh, NIFA and you collected, you happen to collect the samples in that day before feeding, she might have artificially high NIFA levels just because she wasn't fed yet. And then if in the next day you collect the samples right after they're fed, she would have low NIFA levels and, you know, you would say, well, we're doing everything fine. So you really need to, if you're going to uh, standardize uh, monitoring practice in your herd, you have to be very methodic and do it usually uh, you you do it the same way every week or every day if you do it every day, and for the reasons I just told you, I don't I wouldn't recommend to go into the very intensive labor intensive uh, practice of uh, measuring those uh, metabolites in every cow. That's what I would say. If, if that's what you, you were suggesting. I know in the past there have been some mm, work, uh, probably early in the 2010s, where they, you know, there were large uh, studies where they would measure uh, ketone bodies in all cows and they would probably do prophylactic uh, 
propylene glycol in the cows that had BHB uh, above 1.2. Uh, that's a valid practice, but with the conditions of the labor market now and with what we know now, I don't think that would be a, a, a recommendation that I would make. In fact, if you look at the recent paper from Cornell that, the, that looked at the common practices in the herds in the Northeast, less than 6% of the producers do prophylactic glycol in fresh cows. So that's, that tells you a lot. It, it's telling that maybe that's not, it's not worth the, to do that. It's not worth it because it's more the input than what you're getting out yeah, of it. Yeah, I, I hadn't seen that paper. That's interesting. Um, one question I have, if, you, if you've spent any time thinking about this, um, let, let's say I'm a producer that's really committed to, I want to find cows that are on the higher end of, of ketones and use propylene glycol, because as you said, there, there is some evidence that it can help turn cows around if, if they're on the edge. Um, what are your thoughts on using some of the newer technologies with flow-through milk analysis, even if it's imperfect, um, using a fat-to-protein ratio with, you know, in-parlor analysis, or some of the systems, I believe, even are predicting ketone concentrations in the milk uh, directly, using that to hone in on cows, and even if it's an imperfect, you know, group of cows that's been selected that way, it at least helps you focus the treatments. Would, would you think that'd be a practical way to implement something? Well, if you have something that's automated and helps you pre-screen the cows, that would be fantastic. I don't have much experience with those. Uh, I would like to learn more about it, but that would save you the time of the screening. That's what really is the bottleneck. You cannot screen every single cow that calves and checking her just once after calving is, is not sensitive enough. You will not be able to detect the cow when it's really sick. So those automated uh, screening tools that are coming uh, and that some herds are already using, they, they would be very helpful. And once you actually identify the cow, you can do a more in-depth screening that would involve obviously measuring ketone bodies and actually doing a, a physical exam on the cow and see if the high levels of ketone bodies are impacting her health or the productivity. Sure. Yep. Yeah. So I, th I think several manufacturers now offer those. It's usually a somewhat more expensive than the base model. Although the robots, I think uh, at least lately robots, I know uh, offer those uh, component estimates that might be useful in that way. Um, fortunately in a robotic herd, they tend to not lock cows up and the feed line, so then you have a different bottleneck, right? But interesting things, I think, to, to consider moving forward. Um, let's turn to prevention then, because, for, you know, from your advice, which makes sense to me, it, it may not be worth screening, you know, hundreds, thousands of cows in a year um, to, to try to find those that are borderline ketotic. What are the best methods uh, that you would point out for a herd that's having trouble with this issue um, to prevent it from happening in the first place? Well, the, the, the first thing is management of the close-up pen. That's, that's crucial. If you have overcrowding, if you have issues with uh, bedding, if you have issues with bunk space, that's going to get reflected in the fresh cow pen. And you can, do, you can have the nicest fresh cow pen with excess beds, 
But if you don't have that in the close up, it's it's not going to matter. You're going to still have the issues. Uh, have the hearse uh, man uh, that's more knowledgeable of uh, cow health, uh, checking the close up pens, that's crucial too in the herds that do have that luxury. Uh, a person that really knows about cows, checking every day the close up pen is going to help you a lot to identify the cows even before they become clinical in the fresh cow pen. Be very careful with uh, changes in, in, in the feed. Uh, that includes the feeder, that includes the equipment. For example, at the end of the year, uh, if that's the case in your herd, when you switch a, a silage from one year to the other, that's usually a time when you see a peak in metabolic diseases after calving. Um, I think it's, it's, it's really, a, I would say, micromanage the close-up pen more than manage the fresh cow pen. So if you have a, a well-managed close-up pen, I don't think you, you will reduce the, the uh, fresh cow issues by a lot. I don't know what percentage, but I can tell you that it will make a difference if you are having problems with the fresh cows. Great. Th those are all great points. I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, when, when there's a million things going on in a dairy, uh, we, we all would love a silver bullet, but usually the devil's in the details, right? And getting all the little details right every single day. And that can get hard. Um, well, without trying to ruin any upcoming patents you might have, I don't want to get in the way of you and becoming incredibly wealthy. Um, <laughs> I wish. Do, do you, what are you excited about for in terms of emerging technologies that might, you know, be a little bit more of a silver bullet or something, you know, consistently effective um, to help cows sort of with their metabolic challenges at the beginning of lactation? Is there anything on the horizon that you are excited about? Well, I think uh, on treating ketosis, it's very important to to maybe. Uh, start to understand that it is a disease that's not coming exclusively from a hepatic malfunction. Uh, in my lab, we believe that uh, everything comes with the, comes from the dysfunction of the fat, the fat tissue. Uh, I know some people might disagree, but that's, 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 that's what it is. But I think uh, when we start treating ketosis as a disease that comes from this function of fibrous tissue, we might have a, a broader pool of uh, tools that we could use to prevent it and to treat it. Uh, so if we could inhibit, not totally, uh, lipolysis when we treat cows with ketosis, we believe that that would benefit the cow. Mm. Something that we have forgotten and we usually don't put attention to is that cows with metabolic diseases are also in pain. Uh, you never hear about someone treating a ketotic cow for pain, for example. Uh, you only treat cows for pain when they have, you know, maybe some locomotor issue, like if they are lame. Uh, or after you do the DA, if you do a surgery, uh, so maybe those two things are going to, to, to be important in the future when we treat clinical cows, clinical cows with clinical ketosis. And also uh, because 
fat mobilization is an inflammatory event. Uh, perhaps in the future, we might consider a targeted supplementation of uh, specific fatty acids that would reduce the inflammation during lipolysis. So no matter what we do, all cows are going to mobilize fat. If the cows don't mobilize fat, they will not make milk. So what we need to try to do is to make that fat mobilization a very low impact event. And by impact, I mean the inflammation that it produces because lipolysis is an inflammatory event, just like calving, just like uh, placental expulsion. Uh, so if we are able to reduce the inflammation during fat mobilization, I think we're going to have cows that are more productive and they will transition better into lactation and go to pig milk and go back into uh, being bred and then pregnant and we'll have successful lactations. That's a good pitch, Andres. I, I remember some fascinating discussions that I first heard about in graduate school. Um, if you think about marine mammals, uh, you know, there's some whales, for example, that can supposedly lose upwards of 40% of their body weight during lactation. And for all we know, you know, don't have massive problems with ketosis or metabolic problems, although they're not nearly as well studied as a cow. Uh, but it's fascinating to think about how does that work in those animals and doesn't cause these huge problems. Well, the cows lose 10%. Some of them lose 20% of the body weight within, within three weeks. So they, they are getting there. Well, obviously, they like a whale, but... I always tell people, you know, a lot of us need to lose some weight, but we, we've definitely learned there's some downsides of losing it too quickly. <laughs> no question. Well, maybe you already answered this, but uh, I wanted to shoot this one at you to because I think by, you know, challenging dogma, we can push the field forward. Is there something that you really believe strongly that you think most people would disagree with? You know, the way, I think fat mobilization is necessary. Uh, but excessive fat mobilization will trigger many, many, many of the predisposing factors for disease in cows. If fat mobilization is not dysregulated, the cows cruise the transition period. If you have any problems in the fat, you will always have a disease or less production. So I'm very a depocentric on... <laughs> I was going to tease you about whether the, any process in the cow starts anywhere else other than in fat. <laughs> well, if it doesn't start, it goes through the fat. So, Because, you know, the other thing is that the fat is everywhere. It's everywhere. There's only one liver. There's, there are only two kidneys, but you see fat everywhere. And that's why the fat can affect several, several processes in the cow and because it's right there, and so that's why I, I am adipocentric on, 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 on cow physiology and cow pathology. So, Andres, maybe we should dig into that for just a second, because, I mean, you and I live in a pretty similar world. Um, not everybody is spending a lot of time reading the current biology literature. When I went through school, as an undergrad at least, I mean, we spent, in anatomy and physiology, we spent probably less than half a lecture on adipose tissue, right? Because it did one thing, it stored energy and it released it when you need it. So why now do you think it's so important? Like, it doesn't make sense. You, you, I think you're just 
trying to get more funding? It, well, <laughs> you, you know what? For you know, f maybe four or five key things that we that research uh, found in the past probably thirty to forty years. Uh, have made a difference on how we approach and how we understand adipose tissue. First is an endocrine organ. It secretes a lot of hormones. We in the past, we never thought about the adipose tissue as, a, as a, an endocrine organ. So it secretes, for example, iponectin, which helps the liver to use sugar. Uh, it also helps the muscle to use fatty acids as energy source. Uh, it also secretes leptin that promotes appetite. It suppresses appetite. Yeah. It also, sorry, sorry. Yeah, it depresses. <laughs> it also, uh, it's a, a reservoir of immune cells. The amount of immune cells that are that reside in the eye position that can be mobilized during intense fat mobilization, for example, is impressive. We don't know the, the details or the mechanisms of how that happens, but it is a fact. Uh, it also can store or can be a reservoir of disease. For example, HIV patients, uh, one of the main reservoirs of the virus is in the fat. COVID-19, the same thing. So we are uh, starting to, to see that the fat tissue is involved in so many metabolic and immune processes that we are learning to give the tissue uh, attention and uh, understanding how it might affect other processes. And that's what has changed in the past 30 to 40 years. And I think one of the key things that uh, really pushed this uh, research on IPOS tissue was the obesity epidemic. Uh, but it's important to know that we don't have a definition for obese cows. The cow is a completely different uh, subject than a human with obesity. It's, it functions totally different. So making a comparison between the two is, is it's problematic, to okay. say the least. Yeah. Yep, fair enough. Thank you for that background. It's been a fascinating area of research, uh, and uh, I'm sure we have a long ways to go in understanding it completely. Typical fresh cow incidence of clinical hypocalcemia is 3 to 6% while subclinical hypocalcemia affects 50% or more of mature cows. Based on cutting-edge research, Excellent offers a new approach that is both effective and easy to use. For more information, visit www.protecta.com. It's time for Famous Three. Well, I, I have three I've got to bounce off you that we ask from every, every guest. And so... First of all, I want to know, what's your favorite dairy-related book or resource that you point people toward? I like to read Progressive Dairyman. Yeah, I always do. Uh, I think it's, it keeps me connected with, with what producers do, and uh, I enjoy reading it. Excellent. Okay. What about your favorite book or resource outside of agriculture? Favorite book? Uh, now I'm reading with my sons uh, two books. One is the 48 laws of power. And I think they're using those laws against me now. Because <laughs> <laughs> they should. Uh, yeah. And then the, I, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. And the second one is very well judo. I think those, you know, communicating with people is super important. And uh, especially with teenagers, in my case, with my sons, but also with, you know, uh, producers, uh, 
dairy band, uh, you know, people that helps you in the farm with milking the cows. You know, we, we need to communicate to with them in order to have a, a very uh, progressive and efficient dairy. So Absolutely. it's the same for us when we go out to the herds to do the research. We need to communicate with them. So I think communication is it's key. Very good. Herbal judo. Okay. So lastly, um, in your opinion, uh, what sets successful dairy pro professionals apart from those that are less successful? Hey, they, I think having the always contextualizing your decisions uh, is key. Uh, for example, now when you have uh, higher milk prices, but at the same time you have higher feed prices, uh, your decisions need to be uh, framed towards that context, that general context. Uh, maybe in 2009, that context was totally different because you had very cheap milk, but at the same time, maybe the prices of feed were not, or were some of them were expensive, some of them were not. So reading, reading the context and Thinking outside the herd, thinking outside the region is super important uh, in taking decisions. And that obviously, uh, if you take the, the right decision, taking into account the context of the situation, you'll be successful no matter what. I think that's a great point. And not to be a downer, but I, I think you're exactly right. And I think that's where the um, volatility of inputs and outputs in the last few years have made that so difficult because, you know, good decision makers want to have some modestly reasonable projections of what things look like before they, you know, invest in something new. And so knowing what that context is going to be is incredibly difficult today. Yeah. And that, that, that's why not everybody is so successful, right? Because yeah, it's not easy, some, right? Some people are better than others uh, through invading in the market, but there is luck obviously too, right? <laughs> so you gamble and taking some decisions then. You can gamble and you hope it pays off. Right? Yeah. Well, Andres, I've really enjoyed this conversation. Thanks for agreeing to do this. Um, uh, let's get together again across campus sometime. Okay. Thank you, Barry, for the invitation. And, uh, I hope everybody enjoys this uh, dairy podcast, not only this episode, but all the ones that are coming. All right, thanks, and be sure to check in, everybody, for the next episode. Take care.